Welcome to the Fan Engagement Pod, a new conversation about fan engagement. Don't forget you can join the Fan Engagement Network at faninsights.co.uk forward slash network forward slash join for exclusive member services and benefits. This stuff is the teacher. 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 Welcome to episode 24 of the Fan Engagement Pod. This is a bit of a special. It's a pretty free-ranging conversation between both myself and Paul Musa, who runs the What The Footy podcast, with this episode published by both What The Footy and the Fan Insights Fan Engagement Pod. Paul's podcast, What The Footy, was set up to help crack open some of the secrets of the game and is worth a listen. He looks at loads of issues around player trading, club ownership, Finance, governance, broadcasting, even speaks to managers and coaching staff. A real mixture. Paul's podcast series clearly reflects him as a person, as someone with an eclectic background, and it's worth taking a look at his LinkedIn page to see what he's been up to for the last few years, including a recent move into law, as well as the Young Entrepreneurs Foundation. His LinkedIn page is in the episode description. We touch a lot on fan engagement, of course, and in areas such as the 50% plus one rule in Germany, the role of supporters trusts, who does fan engagement well, as well as Project Big, Big Picture, Fulham's player trading, Premflix and on-demand services, and how the FA does and doesn't get involved in regulating clubs. It's a real tour of the issues in football. I really enjoyed this episode, which I'm sure you can tell, so please have a listen. hope you enjoy it, and don't forget you can join the Fan Engagement Network at faninsights.co.uk forward slash network forward slash join. We're introducing some exclusive member services soon. As far as I'm concerned, we're concerned we've started. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, Paul, look, can I ask you a question? Because um, I think, because I want to. So I'm going to ask you a question first. Yeah, um, what made you want to, to, or what made you think that, that, that fans need to know more about how football runs as a business? Yeah, so I think for me, um, I think you can almost see it in, in almost every club. So whether you support Arsenal like I do, you support Dagenham and Redbridge, or you support a National League football club or a championship football club, I think a lot of clubs all face similar issues. And I think that main issue is the, the lack of dialogue a lot of the time between fans and the ownership. Um, fans tend to obviously can be quite critical when things aren't going right on the pitch in terms of signing, in terms of is the right manager in charge and owners a lot of the time don't usually come out and publicly address a lot of these issues. So um, I think this for me, starting this podcast, is an opportunity to just create that dialogue and almost show fans what life behind the scenes is like. We're seeing, for instance, huge rights holders come into football from a broadcasting perspective, putting games on on a Monday night. You have to come from London all the way up to up to the northeast or the northwest, and fans fans can get disgruntled. Whether you look at agents getting involved in deals, and fans are saying, "Why can't we sign this player?" And, and you turn out it turns out that it's because the agents agent terms haven't been agreed really well. So sitting down with agents and being able to flesh out what actually happens in these deals and what actually happens when sponsors and rights holders and different stakeholders all get involved in football. Because at the end of the day, the most important uh, person in football for me is the fan but 
as the game has grown into more of a business, various stakeholders are involved and, and almost requires there to be someone like myself to facilitate that conversation, really. Okay. I mean, it's it's interesting because it's an art, it's a sort of, it's a problem that's been, um, I mean, in part in a business like football, I suppose you're always going to have intrigue and, and what have you. It's always going to be, you know, because it sort of has elements of entertainment to it because it has mm. stars and even the stars. And by stars, I do mean sort of as well. I think you know, we, we're prone to talk about Man United or Liverpool or Arsenal or whatever. Yeah. And actually, stars, stars that, that applies to people playing for Lincoln City or, or Morecambe if you see them in the high street before a game or they're stars as well to those people nearby aren't they it's a smaller it's a sort of shrunk environment but in a sense that's the same sort of thing they're less recognizable but that's part of the deal of playing further down the pyramid so it's a bit like that isn't it and so perhaps there's there's a you know perhaps there's always going to be a bit of mystery to it isn't there because it's because actually uh, i think it was actually carl fitzpatrick who i'm i haven't i haven't actually broadcast the um podcast yet but he runs warrington wolves in rugby league Mm. Um, they're one of the bigger clubs. I think you know their average goes about fifteen and a half thousand. So they're a decent sized club, and he know, you know, and he's been a player as well in rugby league, so he knows the sport really well. And he actually says about rugby league, and he says it in the podcast that he thinks they could do with a bit more mystery um, because the players. He said the players are almost too well known. It's almost too e- sorry. It's almost too easy to approach people. There's no. There needs. To, he wants to create a little bit more mystery about it and a bit more excitement because he has to generate that excitement and maybe in a sense in football we're because it's so vast we're mm. overdosed on it aren't we and it becomes like um football's version of okay magazine um and I, and then actually you look at it and go do you know what it, it is just 11 people playing 11 people and mm. who has it said it another another person um, I interviewed said in the end too many names yeah well and it's ele- I mean there yeah. are two parts to this one is people playing it and the other is people watching it mm. and that what's happened over time and I think this is where you come in is more and more intermediaries have have entered the field of play if you like metaphorically speaking have entered the industry mm. whether that is full-time professional staff in clubs which didn't really exist in a large quantity before the 1970s or whether it's agents um you know in the not before like you probably just had a club secretary and some administration and match day staff now you've got yeah. whole teams of people running football clubs then you had agents managers have coaching staff fitness conditioning people all these people yeah and then, then it adds another, yeah. yeah it adds another layer doesn't it so mm. so i can see there's a segue between somewhere is a, a midpoint somewhere between what carl says about rugby league being it's all just a bit too sort of open in a sense or there's there's not quite enough mystery about it and then there's football just an endless machine of gossip yeah (laughs) and 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 almost in terms of obviously you've been doing fan engagement for quite a while based on that sort of analogy that you mentioned there how do you think that's almost aided or helped fan engagement in terms of how football has grown into this big machine now Um, has it well? I mean, the major thing that sort of if you talk about fan engagement in the way that it needs to be talked about, which is it's a subset of stakeholder engagement, 
anything that you do as a result of fan engagement, which might be delivery, which might be match day, whatever, that's a subset of fan engagement, if you like. So fan engagement as a stakeholder, piece of work with stakeholders, um, has changed massive. Well, it's, you know, it's moved from being, um, again, you have to always look at the history of stuff, is, is it's moved from being um, previously, we trooped along to the ground, it was either a member a member association, the football club was was member owned, or it was you know it was essentially non profit. Even if it wasn't, even if it was privately owned with share shares and stuff, it was generally owned by a local, usually a bloke, a, a local bloke, a local family, um, and it was so straightforward in that sense because we kind of all knew where we where we sat with it, and the idea. Um, it all tended to be built around communities, literal geographical communities, didn't it? And I support Wimbledon because I was born down the road from the ground. And my dad had a friend who played in goal and he used to watch them sometimes when he wasn't playing in the 1960s. And, mm. and all that sort of stuff, all the connections are really clear. And then the game changes. And I think the moment it really starts to change is the 70s when society changes and we all become much more displaced and dispersed and we move around and you can't stay you were born in hackney i was born in wimbledon neither yeah. of us knew where we were where we're from anymore yeah. and that matters and then you and then the game grows and the intrigue grows the levels and the layers grow and then what happens is is of course some of the wrong people enter the game which we saw mm. in the 80s and 90s and we saw dreadful things happening because the wrong people were making bad decisions about people like us, about fans and players, you know, treated as chattel. Um, and eventually it just builds to a point where you have to start asking questions. So where it changed for me was that the obvious for me was it changed in 2002 when my, when the league place earned by my club over, a, over a long period of time was, was effectively sold to another town. Um, and, um, and obviously that wake, wakes you up as to what, what this is all about. It doesn't make you go suddenly, oh, fan engagement, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? You're yeah. saving, trying to fight for the life of your club. And then obviously we went and did what we did and restarted it and all that kind of stuff and reformed it. Um, but it, it makes you start to question where decisions are made and why they're made. And where engagement has really changed is that there were multiple incidents, multiple sort of, it was a, it was a, it was a motorway pile up in some senses in the early 2000s, up to the time when ITV Digital collapsed and, and nearly dragged half, half, you talk about financial crisis now, as a lot of clubs were nearly, were nearly gone because of what happened yeah. there. And it was, you know, it was the hard work of government, Supporters Direct, um, who I was privileged to work for through some of that period. Um, uh, uh, or certainly just after that period, around the sort of as it was washing up, if you like, and, and the impact was really being felt. Um, uh, and and also, I have to say, people like Lord Marwinney, Brian Marwinney, who ran the Football League, um, and 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 many respects, some of the stuff the Football League did to bring change about to the competition and the way it was regulated and the way that it related to fans. Um, what's been sort of interesting, I suppose. Has been that I think we got I think I don't think fan organisations and supporters that certainly didn't get complacent. I think we all settled yeah. into a bit of a period where it it things were all right, and that was doubt you know and and there was a period where things were genuinely okay because because of what you know for example what Lord Marwini did. Um, 
so, so someone said to me the other day that and I, you know i won't um i won't say who <laughs> but who works yeah. for me during controversial his life, yeah yeah was, was well was he had he had the clubs by the balls was what, what this person said i yeah. mean in essence he knew how to navigate all the relationships and yeah. he wasn't scared to do that in order to ensure the security and long-term success of the competition it's what it's you know, and the man was burnished in Northern Ireland politics, so he knows exactly he knew exactly what warring sides was about. That whole idea um, for him in football was probably quite straightforward. You know, he needed to manage and balance all these competing interests. And I think to some extent we sort of then enter that you know 2010, 2011, 2012, and it was all sort of it, it was all kind of going along okay. There were things we needed to do. We governance reviews that frankly again didn't work. And, and that's, you know, that's about the control of the process, all that sort of stuff, and, and the, some of the deals that get done to solve the issues. But it, I think I think what sort of really um, has changed, I think, I think what's been really important has been that there are some groups, some organisations, so yeah. some supporters' trusts, um, not not every fan organization really supporters trust the ones that that matter in terms of the governance because that's what they're interested in that's always been their express mission is to improve the governance crack clubs open make them more transparent um and some of what a club say for example spurs the Tottenham hotspur supporters trust and martin cloak and cat law and, and their colleagues and all the people that have worked hard there um they've proven a point about engagement that it actually works and is beneficial same at Fulham, um, you know, they haven't been afraid to bare their teeth at times when they've had to with the football club and the football club haven't been scared to open up to them because what mm. they've done is they put it on a very honest basis. So lots of... What's, the... what's your thoughts on, on, on what happened the other day with the director coming out and speaking about, speaking publicly about the transfer business that's going on? Because quite a lot of people were quite critical of that. My, my sort of personal view there was I like directors and management coming out and being transparent whether twitter is the right vehicle for that is, uh, is another so, question I, I have to say i missed it <laughs> so um, i presume this was tony khan's son is it tony khan's yeah son? that's correct yeah yeah that's correct um, yeah was that sort of talking about how difficult it's been to sign players yeah talking about how difficult it's been to sign defenders and how i, I don't I get don't, why, yeah i don't get why that's a problem i mean this, this is yeah. one of the things that I say constantly, and people are probably bored of me saying it, is this is not rocket science. This is not, this is the Wizard of Oz, right? There is, a li there is, I'm afraid, I hate to break it to everyone, there is basically a little man behind a green curtain pulling a chain and shouting down a, um, uh, you know, shouting down a tube. You know, look upon my works, ye mighty in despair. No, it's football. That's what it is. It's 11 people playing 11 people with some substitutes and there are some people watching it, and, and then there are intermediaries. And the idea that we can't know about things. There are things we choose not to know about in football. So mm. over here, we choose not to know about, we choose not to definitely know player wages. Whereas in the States, part of, part of MLS is the published salaries. So even that is not, you know, when people say, well, you can't know what players are, played, players are paid. Well, you can, if you make a choice to make that public. Yeah. And what they've done in MLS is they've decided that doesn't that that isn't a, a problem for them. And the players have said that's not a problem for us. They've accepted it. So um, a lot of this is about choice. And I think it's 
I think if Tony Khan is talking about how frustrating it is to sign players because I don't know what the issue was, you know, maybe he's having a problem with intermediaries, player agents and things like that, then that's fine. Why shouldn't he? If it, You know, I mean, Twitter's the way we all do it because Twitter's an instant news feed and we yeah. tend to go there because it gets a great big audience and, and that's, a, a you know, well, fine, OK. Maybe there's, maybe you can do it in different I think it's great if people talk about those things because if it lifts the veil a bit more and makes us understand that it's all a bit mm. less conspiratorial, it's all a little bit less by design and it's all a bit more chaotic and actually based on human relationships. And the reason that things happen is because someone has a conversation, not because someone designs a process that they see through to the end to get their result. Then I think yeah. that's good. I think that's genuinely good. If you're scared, I think if, I think if we're scared of transparency, I think if people argue against transparency, they've got to have a very good reason to do it. Yeah. Because no, I couldn't, I, think, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So what, you know, it, for example, let's have, you know, I think what, one of my go-to clubs is always going to be somewhere like Norwich. Um, mm. And, you know, there are things they don't talk about, which I've, one of which I mentioned, do with player deals, um, player wages. But they're really straight with people, you know. How I, I think the problem is is that we've always sort of, you know, that there's always. Um, I, I think probably it's English. It's maybe an English straight British thing. Is is um, there's a there's not a presumption. I think the first presumption should be transparency and um, placing information on the public record is a good thing, um, yeah. and. Uh, and in general, that is the principle upon which we should operate. And then if you're not going to do it, you need to give us a good reason why you're not. And you might have a good reason. And I respect that entirely. And I think that's entirely right. But I think that's now the expectation. And I think that's possibly. So actually coming yeah. back and actually answering your question instead of rambling. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a <laughs> massive, massive part of where engagement has gone is that the expectations of people in society in general is now. Why can't you tell me? And actually, mm. that, and that is how, um, you know, everyone's going to have to get used to that. What's your What's your thoughts on fifty plus one? That that obviously occurs over in Germany. I've mm. always been a big advocate for it myself. I think especially for the for the big Premier League boys, um, sort of in terms of how the German clubs over there run, um, from obviously that membership model that we used to have over here in in English football. What's, what's your views on it? And do you feel as though fan engagement and dialogue between fans and management would improve if, if that was sort of sort of involved? Um, look, I, I am unashamedly a member and co-owner of AFC Wimbledon, and I'm very, very blessed because of that. Mm. And, um, it nearly it nearly went because um, because because some people thought we didn't need it for some reason. Uh, at the back end of last year, and and and, a, and the vast majority of fans showed they wanted to keep it, so it's great, and I love yeah. it. For me, as a personal preference, I've never been shy of saying that I think fan ownership is a superior model. But yeah. you're talking about two things: you're talking about um, the ownership and uh, models of a football club, and the governance, and yeah, the governance of the game more widely. And yes, the two are connected without a doubt. However. The problem I have with the discussion around fan ownership is that there are far too many people who still see it as a panacea. They go, right, if only we could have fan ownership, we'd all be fine. No, you wouldn't, because I can go to yeah. countries and I can tell you there are um, um, 
you know, clubs that I worked with in, and groups of fans that I worked with in European football, wider European football, where, yeah, they were fan owned, but it was like a dictatorship. Mm. Um, and, the, uh, and the person in charge um, uh, was in total control. And it wasn't because that was the electoral system. It was because they were in total control. Um, and they were highly influential in the game in their country. And they used it as a, as a political tool for themselves. So um, I don't dismiss the argument about fan ownership because obviously I'm a beneficiary of it, but I don't believe it's a panacea. I, what the panacea is, if there's a panacea at all, and actually it's not really a panacea because that suggests it solves everything, is that look at the fan engagement index, look at what the clubs are that do well in it. So this, yeah. this is the annual review of fun engagement that fun insights publishes look love at the it, club. by the way sorry love it by the way love it right, by the way the you. index yeah, yeah yeah but look at that look at the table and look at who does it well mm. and you'll see there's a load of clubs in there that have either no fan ownership at all so no shares owned by the by the fans or only a small amount and the reason they do well is because they respect the three pillars of good fan engagement which is dialogue transparency and governance so get those integrated into every club uh, get people to be thinking about this as a culture and a habit or yeah. as a habit and it becomes a culture, then you have much more of an easy job arguing that actually it's not that much of a journey. You know, So let's say if you want them to be ideologically in favour of fan ownership, because it is an ideological choice, then you'll find the argument a lot easier to make. But if you approach it from the perspective of fan ownership is the system, no, it's not, you know, but Bayern Munich get accused of being um you know too big and too successful but they're fan owned yeah. yeah well you know but what keeps german football in check more more than anything else is that they have a cultural respect for the role of fans they have an understanding and appreciation of it's true yeah of of transparency and a lot of it also is is german culture that that's the way they've built their society and politics since 1945 which we all know why, and they've become a leader in that area in many respects in the world. And so it's, it's not, and, and by the way, it's not that we can't then bring those things to this country and make English football better and more like, more appropriately run and more transparent and all those kinds of things. It's just that the reason Germany have been able to get there is because it's been encouraged in wider society and in corporate behaviour and all those sorts of things. So it's a very complicated thing. So, you know, ideologically, of course, I, I, I think it's a superior model. But English football isn't going to become a fan owned. There's not going to be some slew of movement into fan ownership that I can see happening. And I don't yeah. think it's a healthy preoccupation. I think the important thing is, as I said, look at the fan engagement index, just to keep name dropping. Look at the fan <laughs> engagement index, work out who does it well and work out how you can copy that if you're a club. Because there are loads of great examples out there as well. I have to say, there's loads of good stuff that you don't always see. Nah, that's really good. That's really good. What's what's your sort of take on? Obviously, there's, there's been a lot in the last sort of week or so, from Project Big Picture to Premier League pay per view. Um, my personal view in in terms of the the broadcast in the Premier League, and obviously how that drip feeds down into the EFL. I've always been in favour of of Prem flicks and uh, the Premier League coming in there, becoming its own broadcaster. And, and just dominating the game because from that perspective you, you do the numbers you crunch the numbers and you look at it and it's better for the Premier League it's better for fans it's better for, for the EFL it's better for for football in general because you have over 200 million people worldwide paying a TV operator to watch the Premier League 
if the Premier League was to come in there and charge it on a Netflix sort of basis of about £10 a month or so, you look at the numbers that they're making from the from the um, from selling the rights to Amazon, BT and Sky, it's about £3.1 billion. You compare the numbers if they were to become their own broadcaster and the numbers are just in in, the, in a different sphere, really. What, what's your sort of thoughts on that? Um, I mean, look, first of all, it's not my area of expertise, but... Um... Yeah. In terms of the specifics of that, um, the the thing about for me the thing about deals, broadcasting deals has always been that the reason it escalates is because of technology. Yeah. But the reason more and more is more and more had been paid, from what I always understood, the more and more really that it had been paid, the the more more and more had been paid for rights, because technology was driving it. It wasn't. It wasn't interesting football. It could have been wrestling that, that drove Sky's business model. It happened to be football for all sorts of reasons. It wasn't an accident, obviously, but, you know, it's nothing necessarily inherent in football. It was just that that was chosen to build their business model. Now, um, technology will keep driving it in one sense. It, you know, it's going to be, it's, it's, technology is a massive driver of everything, isn't it? Um, it's the reason we're talking today. We're, we are now publishers. Who would have thought that was possible even really even five years ago? You know, all of a sudden the cost of everything has crashed and now means we can we can pump this stuff out. Hopefully someone will listen to it. Um, so there's lots of that. I was it now there was someone who wrote about this the other day, and I can't remember for the life of me who it was, but it would have been someone like Matt Slater or at the Athletic or someone, someone like, I don't know, Ben Run Rumsby at the Telegraph or maybe Dave Conn at the Guardian. But Whoever it was was writing or talking about it said there's an assumption that yeah, Premflix is the next thing. Um, yeah. what you've what you've got a balance in that though, I think, and I think this is what it was this what I recall it saying was um there's there's a there's something very, very comforting if you're a business about being paid 110 million pounds at the beginning of your business year. So if you're handed money at the beginning of the business year, you can plan. If what you do is then flip to a business model, which you believe will generate vast amounts of money um, on the basis that it's worked for Netflix, for Amazon Prime, it's working for, you know, you know, iPlayer I, I don't, iPlayer don't charge, BBC don't charge for it. But, you know, BBC iPlayer is massively popular. It's a similar model. It's, you know, it's yeah. on demand, isn't it? It's streaming. Um, if you assume that suddenly it's all going to work because it works everywhere else, well, you might be right that it will work, but then what's the impact on the business model not getting £110 million down payment every year? Now, you you might, what you yeah, might yeah. do, and this is where the Premier League have been, you know, it doesn't matter whether I like it or not, and there are some things the Premier League have done that I don't like, and there are some things that I sort of grudgingly respect. But if there's one thing the Premier League have been very, very, very clever about um, is how the politics works, how it plays out, which is partly why Project Big Picture and the way that happened was such a sort of surprise for a lot of people because Richard Scudamore and Bill Bush um, and and to some extent, I think probably his predecessor, um, Bill Bush's predecessor, Phil French, who I worked for when he was, and he, he used to be sort of right-hand man to, uh, in many respects, and a uh, policy man for Richard Scudamore, is that they understood how all the politics worked and they made sure that stuff, that the, that the politics of, the clubs, the member clubs was incorporated, you know, there was always 
um, uh, were uh, understood and the dynamics were understood, that the politics of making the deals was understood and what, you know, how you grew the market, all those sorts of things, how you dealt yeah. with Europe, you know, at the time, which is obviously not going to be the same issue um, in the same way. For, and now we're leaving the, you know, we're now we're leaving the single market, but the role of the European Commission and the setting of regulation there and all these things um, require and required very delicate balancing. If you flip to Premflix, it's going to change it all. And it's going to mean on a very practical basis, clubs don't have the guaranteed cash at the start of the season. Um, mm. And you don't know what the impact is going to be on central distributions. You know, you're talking about everyone distributing you know, project restart saying here's 25 percent of our income. Um, but what's that income going to be if you move to Premflix and then clubs start demanding a bigger cut for themselves because they're getting bigger viewers, bigger, more viewers? Yeah. You know, people are going to, I mean, you can sort of do that now, but because the money comes yeah. in on block, it's harder to then argue it when you're distributing it. And you can, and anyway, you do facility fees and merit payments. It all makes sense. Yeah. So actually, from what I understood about that article that I can't remember the author of, but which stuck in my mind is that if you're going to do it, you do it the way the Premier League does it and you think about it carefully and you plot how this works and you do as much as you can to mitigate and uh you know and i think this is what really what richard scudamore and bill bush and um, and co did for so long mm. whether you like the premier league or not what they did to some extent was sort of mitigate the worst excesses um, and they tried to do that and they didn't always do it in how we wanted it but as a process that's basically what they tried to do and you might say it's a lost cause mate why are yeah. you trying to mitigate a bunch of greedy oh. clubs but that's the reality you're working with massive football clubs who are yeah. who are who want a particular way of doing things they want they want a constant increase in their income because that's kind of how it's been been for years and if they don't get that they're going to start asking questions and that was the success of richard scudamore in the end was that he yeah. kept delivering every year you cannot <laughs> you know but you know it's i think i think i think it's tough because I think when you really look at it, I think it would be nice for them to trial it because obviously I think logistically it's obviously going to be a nightmare because I know I know a guy who used to sell the the Premier League rights to different territories and obviously you have to work with different uh, different uh, territories and you have to work with different presenters and different TV stations and etc. And it's all a bit of a mess there. But I think if you really look at it from a consumer welfare perspective, you look at it from the fans paying about fourteen pounds uh, per game when they can be paying ten pound a month getting that additional content and having the scale, I think I think it's worlds apart. I think it's definitely something worth exploring, but you, you do raise some good points in terms of the central payments and in terms of how it's how, how it's almost how how it's distributed between various clubs and stuff. But I think from a from a numbers perspective, the numbers are like night and day in, in comparison. Well well but the the thing is is we simply don't know as yeah. well. There's no um, I'm not aware of any football competition having gone down this route. Not any, yeah. not any substantial football competition. Say, one of the top leagues in Europe, or I mean, maybe they've done it in South America. Um, you know, but somewhere where football is absolutely massive and yeah. dominates the landscape. So I think we, you know, a bit like in a sense, a bit like there's a habit of doing with fan ownership, you know, or or, or the next big idea. In general, you've got to be careful because you've got a an ecosystem of clubs 
Um, and even Premier League clubs, you know, there's a habit of just sort of referring to them as though they're just these enormous beasts, all of them, and that they're all, you know, yeah, of course, owners have massive influence. But, you know, these things are living, breathing entities in many respects. We all know how precious they are. Even Man United, you know, let's let's stop this idea that, yeah, of course, they want to be big and all that kind of stuff. But they are also someone's football club and they are also someone's job, all these sorts of things. Um, and that if you if you change the ecosystem and you do something vast, you do something very significant to it, yeah. there are going to be impacts. And that, you know, I think I suppose the bit that I've picked up more and more and more, the more I spend time talking with people and, um, you know, investigating it and, and, and doing work with them is, you know, you you have to more you have to as much as you can. Uh, appreciate just how much they are they are institutions run by people and and not as i said it's wizard of oz mate it's not this isn't rocket science and and all of those issues you get with any other organization when you try to change it reform it do something with it challenge it you'll get you'll get the same sorts of reactions and the same yeah. you know sometimes the same sort of um frailties and and sometimes you know uh, a sense of a fo football's quite thin-skinned and uh, quite conservative at a small C and it doesn't like change, but then it will go off chasing, you know, it will do the Premier League, you know, create the Premier League. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's a, you, you just got to, you know, simplify it. <laughs> it isn't yeah. as complicated as people make out. <laughs> yeah, so is, I, I definitely agree with you. And I think the way you summarise in terms of you've got 11 people playing against 11 people, and intermediaries involved, but do you know what is? I think I think it's tough because if you really, if you really look at it, whether you want to look at the how the grassroots game is almost dying away due to obviously what's going on right now, you look at championship clubs needing two hundred and fifty million pounds to stay afloat. You've got clubs winding up into administration. You've got the women's game needing more investment in in that sort of front. It's almost like. And not, not even that alone, you've got people trying to scrap competition, scrap the League Cup, scrap this, re remove replays, and everyone's trying to bring new ideas to the game. But what's going to be that thing that's really going to deliver the most important value, which is value for the fans and have a knock-on effect for, of course, value, value for the rights holders, values for the owners, values for the club. It's tough. Well, it is, but I mean, you know, part of this is what happens in a... In a um to some extent in a democracy isn't it we're you know we've yeah. got institutions and we're able to question them um uh, and so part of it is just the healthy debate part of it is also you know let's be honest part of the problem with what's been going on for probably really for the last five years has been um has been that the fa um made a very um deliberate decision to reverse itself out of being seen as responsible for for the governance on a sort of day-to-day -day level of football clubs in in the top four divisions yeah. and the reason it did that and i maintain this i think i'm right on this i'm very happy to be told i'm not but um is i think is that they used to try to show an interest in it they tried to do things about it and they tried to address the issues and they were told that they weren't wanted constantly um and so in the end, and they weren't told they weren't wanted by the fans, but in the end, they had to deal with the most sort of pressurised part of it was the clubs and the clubs didn't want them um, intervening. So they said, OK, well, 
you know, we have to sign off your rule books every year. So as long as what you do accords with the rules, then the day to day stuff, we don't really have any much, much involvement in any way. And you regulate yourselves in a lot of financial areas and with the, um, you know, with things like the owners and directors test as it is now or what was the fit and proper yeah. person. So fine. OK, um, you have you now do it now. I think to some extent, since that happened, what that did was exposed what the fault lines were and whether it was clever or not. And I'm, you know, maybe this is me being um, being wrong in my analysis and thinking that it's all by design rather than by accident. But I thought when that was done that, yes, it was obviously to do with resources because it was this is, you know, what Greg Dyke undertook was kind of about resources and where to allocate resources in, in the FA and their and their sort of role as governor of the game across the country. But I think also whether it, as I say, by accident or by design, it was actually an intelligent move to say, okay, if you want that, um, then we, then I think this, you know, I looked at it and I felt this would expose the fault lines personally with the FA sort of backing off in that area. And it did, it duly did. And it meant that when someone said, so why, why is this problem happening in the football league or the premier league? And a lot of it was really happening in the EFL. Everyone could see that it was a problem the EFL had with their rules. And so then fans would be going, you know, how has engagement changed? Well, that that those fissures and that and those cracks have appeared. And and I think personally speaking, I think, you know, not, you know, with with my sort of personal hat on, if that's possible. Um, yeah. To some extent, it's opposed the it's it's exposed the frailty in the EFL. Um, and I think it's exposed the desperate need for football competitions to become football, to be football competitions and not self-regulators. Because I also, I've said it a lot, I think it's unfair that we expect self-interested football clubs, because they all are, we've, they're all self-interested, that's part of what they're going to be. Um, yeah. you know, this, is not com this, this is not some kind of communist paradise where everyone thinks of each other. There is a degree of self-interest in there. And I think it would be beneficial to remove too much of the effect of that. And that, and that it is basically sort of unfair to expect clubs to really be any different. And, yeah, um, and I, I, you know, I, I would hope that, you know, that what you see now will be, and I think the FA have been quite intelligent about what they've done and they haven't intervened too much in what's been going on. I, th I hope that they get an opportunity to begin to take a more important role in, in mm. governance and, you know, and securing the game in that sense to make sure that we haven't got this frailty in our clubs and that we don't, you know, I mean, look, COVID has exposed cracks. Yes. But also COVID, in itself, COVID in itself is just a ridiculous world event that has never happened in modern, in the modern era. Um, well, you know, obviously the Spanish flu is exactly the same really, but you know, we, none of us can remember that. None of us can remember yeah. what happened, but you know, this has stopped the world from almost stopped the world from turning. Um, you know, we we can't we can't we can't deal with this in a normal way. And everyone is just dealing with it as it comes. And they don't know, you know, and we've got to separate. What, yeah. You need to separate yeah. that out as well, because because actually, you know, the big bit from the people I've spoken to, people running clubs and that. They just said they want certainty and they don't mean certainty from football. What they want is certainty from government. Their problem is, is a lot of problem with the way government are and aren't making decisions for them, mm. particularly about the return of fans. So let's say, you know, separate out the two. We're in a crisis because of COVID and then the crisis is made worse because of 
the frail business model of a lot of football clubs and the governance yeah. model to some extent. Um, but the cause of the problems we've got are not football. Um, it is not because of football that clubs are on the way out in some se- in some cases if they don't get money. The reason yeah. clubs are on their way out is because they ain't getting any people in the gate. There's no there's no discretionary spend. People are not buying beer. They're not buying shirts. You know, yeah, their revenue is a lot of the, the main gone. driver for a lot of clubs. Yeah, gone, yeah. disappeared, and then clubs yeah. are trying to convert it, but they're giving they're giving match passes away to watch. Yeah, yeah. So they're not even getting income from that from some of those people. So yeah. you know, your your mission to open up the game and the or the things that go on and and kind of lift a lid on it and pull back that curtain so everyone sees a little man pulling a chain is, is important in that sense yeah. that people need to understand that this is, once you remove fans from the gate, it's the same as theatres. Theatres weren't all on yeah. the financial. Um, the reason theatres are going bust or in danger of disappearing is not because they ran themselves badly. Um, it, the principal cause at the moment is COVID. Then there are underlying issues with all sorts of business models, which might, have accelerated and COVID might have accelerated problems. Yes, of course. But COVID has caused so much of this and we need to, we yeah. need to kind of keep it. And I think, I do think a lot a lot of clubs are now realising they have to be more creative in terms of what they're doing from a commercial uh, revenue generating standpoint, yeah. whether that's from, from social media, media generating content to, to streaming, to touch a new different markets. And I think if you look at, there's a really good resource, uh, the Deloitte Money League, where they look and they analyse all the top 20 clubs and you look at a lot of big clubs within Europe, they can swallow these losses because they generate huge amount of, of revenue through commercial deals, through merchandising. But you look at the, the football pyramid from the championship below and it's, and it's like a lot of that, their main source of income is, is through match day revenue, yeah. which, which is or, tough. Well, or in the case of um, Premier League clubs, broadcasting income. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's probably this period has really challenged everyone's concept of, of sort of, of it's challenged business models in all sorts of places. I mean, one of the things mm. that we said is austerity has made businesses very lean in a lot of cases. I was talking to a business development advisor yesterday for my own purposes, and we were talking about that, how, um, um, how businesses were already, had already reduced their staff count. Um, reduce their, their their resources, all those sorts of things, because because they just couldn't afford to do things anymore. And a lot of central government and local government, particularly, has you know disappeared kind of under austerity. Um, and when it comes to football, I think I think um, I think football's over reliance on particular streams of income, be that mm. broadcasting in the Premier League. Yeah. But 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 they're all reliant on broadcasting to some extent because you know it's a business where you get handed money for playing. Yeah, in um, but then also, I think, um, yeah, clubs didn't necessarily exploit the other areas be- because they also maybe had a, a an owner stream, if you like, a, um, an, an owner investor in inverted commas stream, um, whether that was actually cash invested, which it isn't usually, you know, whether it was debt um, or, 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 or some other form of shares or something like that. Um, and actually moving it on to, I think, a, 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 a sports business model is absolutely correct. If you, you know, the thing that I suppose always makes me chuckle about hearing some fans talk about this, um, and, it, and it does tend to be fans that will say this, they'll go, trouble in football is we get treated like a customer and it's run like a business. It's not, that's part of the problem, is mm-hmm. 
in, actually in a lot of cases you don't even you haven't even traditionally really been treated by a customer like a customer um yeah. you know because some of the products quote unquote that you're being sold for getting out the match day you know are inadequate and not good enough and some of the match day experience stuff isn't good enough uh, you know there's been lots of work done by people like mark bradley to change that and um um and you know and so people have kind of um and, and the business sort of the idea of football being run as a business well there is no business still that i know of and i think this applies in sport as well yeah. um, where you rely on an owner to fund it you know yeah and, and it's dying up because clubs want to be sustainable now yeah well, yeah yeah totally and no business runs itself no business i know runs itself because an owner writes a check at the beginning or the end of every year when it's running exactly, out of money. Yeah. So actually the idea that this might hasten us moving to a sports business model yeah. where we are, where we run it as a sports business, where we have fans as stakeholders, part-time, I would call them part-time customers because they are, you make yeah. purchase decisions. But the thing is, is the reason you do it is because of the loyalty. So your interaction has to be different. So if you can build yeah. a, a sports business, you see, I've, you know, somewhere like Norwich, I think is successfully doing it. They've got, They've got an understanding of what their business business actually is. And um, and this also happens at places like Doncaster and Lincoln. I always talk about those two particularly. And I think you're seeing it emerge at Carlisle, for example, uh, and, and Cambridge United, is they look at it and go, right, well, you know, our, our stakeholders are this weird meld of customer and, um, and religious uh, devotee. Um, and we need to appreciate that. So we need to do lots of listening. We need to involve them in decisions and yeah. just make them feel like they're involved make them involved and always be prepared to listen always be prepared as someone said to have a conversation someone Everton I was talking to a conversation cost and I said let's have conversations so all of those things but then they do understand that they need income to run the business so they need to charge yeah. what's appropriate mm. but don't don't do it on the basis of what's the ceiling for a decision made by a customer realize that you're talking about the ceiling or the relate you know the relationship here is is that as i said it's it's part-time customer full-time um religious devotee in a sense and that yeah. combination makes our decisions a bit irrational but it means you can get a lot more out of them sometimes like mm. we've seen covid and, and ticket refunds so if you understand uh, you know there there are so many good examples out there where actually you can see now we could move to a sports business model a proper sports business model where clubs are being run as sports businesses and football clubs are listening and it's just integrated as part yeah, of the modern. very important yeah you can start to see it and that's i think that's a good thing that's gonna um yeah. that has the potential to come out of this period that yeah this dress so terrible for all of us but football yeah football clubs are, are struggling so much you know we could see something good come out of it if we can all kind of focus on that rather than the intrigue of whether or not project big picture was an attempted conspiracy or whether someone <laughs> someone leaked the document uh you know, uh, to crash the whole thing. Who, you know who cares to be honest let's get on dealing with the issues that we've got in front of us Sorry, exactly. I, I think that's a and i think that's a nice <laughs> i think that's a nice way to end it what the footy podcast the fan insights podcast fan engagement meets football business kevin rye paul musa <laughs> absolute pleasure hope you guys Thank love you this episode much, Thank you. Uh, I, enjoy, I enjoyed chatting with you as always, Kevin.